everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Alright. Villains. Not you. Not talking about you. Um... We've been talking about villains for quite a while now, and I think one of the questions and one of the reasons that makes this topic so engaging for us is secretly, don't we try and find a way to identify with those characters that we call villains? I mean, if you think about all of the ones in sort of pop culture or literature, the Darth Vaders, the Voldemorts, oops, sorry, he shall not be named, Joker... Like, there's something about these characters that both compel us and repel us. There's something in their makeup, in their backstory, that makes us wonder why they act the way they do. And if I might not also have some of that in me, right? Or the real-life TV characters, um, like true crime or... Reality shows, should put reality in quotes, and have made cultural icons out of these people in spite of their unrepentant attitudes, unconfessed crimes. You know who I'm talking about, the Stephen Avery's or the Ted Bundy's, Charles Manson, just to name a few. Their existence and their popularity reminds us that the world is a dark place. And that in spite of our ongoing efforts to make it better, it's never better for everyone. The human condition, it turns out, produces villains and victims. And most of us try and walk the fine line between these two extremes and hope to never experience either. Evil, though, affects us all, directly and indirectly. Maybe you're here this morning with a little bit of chill of evil in your life. Maybe you're here this morning hoping for words of comfort and encouragement. And I think you're in good company. And that's our goal in this message. But we will be starting the morning out on a bit of a dark and sinister note. Dear children... This is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Father, this morning as we look into your word and maybe some of the most confusing and terrifying parts of it, we just pray that you would be in our presence and would lead us to the hope that you have for us here in Jesus' name. We've been in this series on villains of the Bible for a good part of the summer now, and we're close to wrapping up. It's been fascinating to look at a variety of characters, incidents, events, and forces that seek to disrupt or destroy the work of God. We have seen the forces at work that create villains and heroes. There have been people who don't know God who act less villainish than people who do, that's been confusing. There have been people with close relationships and direct access to God 
who've had villainy in their hearts. We've been reminded week after week that being a villain is not that hard. And sometimes if we're honest, we're guilty of being villains ourselves. Villains in need of healing, redemption, villains who need a savior. But today, today might be different because today we're talking about an arch villain, a super villain, a criminal and political mastermind. We could say we're talking about the villain of all villains, the gold standard of villains, the villains to which all other villains will be compared, the Antichrist. So let's meet that villain together and try and figure out what makes him such a pivotal character in the grand scheme of the Christian story. And oddly enough, for all the fuss about the Antichrist, evil world ruler and harbinger of hopelessness, there are actually few references in Scripture to work from. So the phrase Antichrist appears only five times, all in the New Testament, all in the writings that are letters written by the Apostle John. Most surprisingly, and you might not have guessed this, None of these direct references to the Antichrist are in the book of Revelation. So, we just read one, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Let me finish that passage because it contains another reference to Antichrist. Even now, many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. What? Antichrists? Plural? Notice that the people that John is referring to here were once a part of the church. Some of you might not be too surprised by that. They were believers who left the truth. Now, I want to be clear, John is not saying that everyone that leaves a church is an antichrist. There's a definite criteria in John's mind that makes someone such, that he can level such a strong accusation, and he's going to go on and explain what's got him so riled up. In verse 21, he says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Skip over a few pages, and in chapter 4 of 1 John, we'll find another reference with some additional instructions about how to discern who these people are or what this spirit is that John is talking about. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize that a spirit of God, every spirit that acknowledges Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now, is already in the world. And for good measure, 
we're going to jump over to the second letter attributed to John. In verse 7, he says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Confused? You're supposed to be at this point. That's, the, that's where we are. So John has a lot to say about antichrist and antichrists and what makes a person fall into that category. But none of these seem to fit our stereotypical definition of who the antichrist is. And I'm just going to say here that John is not concerned about beastly marks or pitched battles for the control of nations. He's angry. He's angry about heresy or false teaching, specifically the teachings that some were confronting the church with, saying that all the fuss about Jesus having to be divine or human weren't really necessary. John had lived alongside of Jesus, had walked with him, and he was going to have nothing to do with this reframing of Jesus' story. He was calling out people who promoted these views, the views that contradicted his experience with Jesus, and he's calling them out in the strongest possible language, denouncing false teachers and their false teachings in no uncertain terms. This is anti-Christ. The teachings are anti-Christian. And that's all that John has to say about that. This seems more like your garden variety church teaching problem than it does the apocryphal end of all times global overlord of evil sort of problem. So how do we get there? How do we have this picture in our mind, this figure that we know as the Antichrist? Well, I'm glad you asked. To get from the generic warnings of the Apostle John to the cruel clutches of the ultimate archvillain, it's a complicated road to travel. But I think it's worth the effort, and if we want to leave this morning with some hope, we should get started. So the explanation begins with a confused negative prefix, linguistic. John is consistent in his use of the prefix anti to describe teaching and teachers that are the opposite of what Christians claim Jesus to be. But ironically, the, the origin of this antichrist figure sort of begins with Jesus himself. It's recorded in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples had just been in Jerusalem visiting the temple. It's a marvel of human effort, religious fervor, political power. And someone in the group just casually comments on the size of these stones that make up the foundation of the temple. And Jesus just offhandedly says, it's kind of a shame that at some point, none of these stones will be standing. There, is, there won't be one of these huge stones left on top of another. Leaving the disciples to wonder, what is Jesus got against the temple? Like, what's, what's that about? So later... When they're outside the city in one of their favorite spots on the Mount of Olives, they ask Jesus, like, explain, please. It's far away from the ears that might have thought this was crazy talk or heresy. What 
what did you mean when you said these stones wouldn't be left standing on top of each other? And when is that going to happen? They specifically want to know when. You see, under Roman occupation, things were not good for the Jewish people. They were oppressed like all of the civilizations that Rome had conquered. But because the Jews were so particularly difficult to manage, the Romans had made one concession. They were allowed to keep their ancestral religion. So the practices of Judaism flourished in a time where most civilizations conquered by Rome were forced into the religious practices of the Romans themselves. So how much worse would things have to be for this temple to be destroyed? Jesus' answer is pretty simple. Much, much worse. Jesus is talking about dark days when great trouble will come to God's people. He describes the destruction of the temple in a time of violence and despair. He doesn't specifically give dates and times, but he provides signs so that followers, the perceptive ones, would know when to expect these terrible events to take place, or at least when to know when they were taking place in the midst of them. And it's in this discussion that he says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe them. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. The disciples may have disagreed at that point because I don't think he had really told them much of anything, but... He, he use, quotes this, uh, one of the Old Testament prophets and says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, I'll draw your attention back to the phrase, the false messiahs, that's the pseudo-Christ false Christ. These are people that are agents of chaos, deceivers that would appear and cause trouble in the world. In biblical apocryphal language, this is the celestial bodies acting abnormally kind of trouble. That's the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood. You've been, maybe if you've been around church for a while, you've heard these phrases used, uh, usually to try and scare you into the straight and narrow. To quote the 80s band R.E.M., this is end of the world as we know it kind of trouble. The pseudo-Christ and dark days of Jesus' teaching would haunt his followers and influence their teaching as they waited for these events to take place in their lifetime. They believed they would take place and they waited with hope and fear. Now, we need to fast forward about 20 years. We find the Apostle Paul writing to a group of followers who are wondering the same thing. How much worse could things possibly get? These followers were far from Jerusalem. They're on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea in a city called Thessalonica. Paul and some other Christians had started a church there as they were traveling in the region of Macedonia. Paul and his companions had to move on quickly uh, just ahead of an angry mob, which was not uncommon if you've 
are familiar with the life and ministry of Paul. And later, he was staying in Corinth. Paul wrote a letter back to the believers at Thessalonica. Um, in your Bible, it's called First Thessalonians, and it instructs the readers there on how to be a church, since Paul really didn't have much time to give them any in-person instruction. Apparently, the church in Thessalonica sent Paul a letter in response to his letter. And the gist of it must have been something like, why didn't you tell us it was going to be this hard? And what's with this Jesus coming back and us not knowing about it? They have this question where they're trying to get clarification on a rumor that they had somehow missed the return of Christ. So Paul writes another letter the second letter to the Thessalonians. Basically to tell them, if they thought it was bad now, just wait. It was going to get worse. So let's pick it up in chapter two. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching allegedly from us whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. That's the return of Christ or the end of the world. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. The coming of the lawless one, and if you're familiar with some of the older translations, you might remember this character as being called the man of sin. Uh, One would, the coming of this lawless one or this man of sin will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Aha, here we are. The man of lawlessness, a solitary evil figure. We now have our antichrist. This letter, this passage from 2 Thessalonians is the New Testament source for this person that we commonly refer to as the antichrist. But to understand more, in order to go forward, we're going to need to go back, way back. About 600 years before Paul writes to the Thessalonians, a prophet, a Hebrew prophet named Daniel, is trying to understand a vision that he's received from God, a particularly terrifying vision. Daniel writes, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven turning up the great sea, four great beasts, each from different from the others, came up out of the sea. And then in several verses following that, Daniel proceeds to describe these terrifying creatures. The descriptions certainly aren't literal. That would be really problematic if you read those verses. You can chase that on your own. They're probably supernatural visions, definitely terrifying. And that's the point. They're supposed to be terrifying. Daniel sees more. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening 
and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, of all the things to think about, this beast with iron teeth and crampling and crushing and all the power, Daniel's focused in on these horns. There before me was another horn, because ten apparently aren't enough, a little one, which comes up among them, and the first, then three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This little horn had the eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Yeah, if you didn't quite follow all that, it's okay. You're in good company. The, I, trying to understand and explain the visions of Old Testament prophets has been the bane of Bible scholars for years. But what we do know is that this vision of Daniel's is echoed in re- Paul's response to the Thessalonian believers. A powerful, violent leader suddenly appears with great power and apparently no moral or spiritual constraint. They're, un, they're just loose in the world. Later in this vision, Daniel describes what he sees as a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. So this ruler, this beast, sets in motion a time of great trouble or tribulation, unprecedented in the human experience. Now, how is this helpful to a group of believers that are wondering how much worse can it get? Where's the hope in all of these dire warnings? I mean, is there any hope at all? Well, I believe there is. I believe that the Antichrist, the epic archvillain, is the Bible's answer to our very human question of how long Will this trouble last? Or how much worse can it get? When Paul writes these words to a confused and troubled group of believers in Thessalonica, believers in Jesus who are afraid that they have missed the day of his return, the the scope of that event was so small that it just left them wondering whether it had ever even happened. They think they might have actually missed the culmination of all human history and they're kind of freaking out about it, Paul's response takes them back to a traditional dramatic element in Hebrew prophecy. We call it apocryphal language. And this language always describes the hardest of the hard times. The day that a human, aided by supernatural evil forces, appears to finally have beaten God. And maybe you've wondered lately, is that what's happening in our world? I mean, what's the point of faith in a world that feels like it has gone mad? Does evil ultimately triumph because it just seems to have nothing to lose? No restraint. Did Jesus just go off to heaven and forget about us? Is he really coming back? How much worse will it have to get? Since misery loves company, I'd like to share with you something from an author who was trying to express his concern about the state of the world. 
He writes, high rates of population contribute to pollution, congestion, urban sprawl, and a host of psychological ailments in developed countries that might mean widespread famine, increased illiteracy, unemployment, squalor, and unrest threatening the foundations of public order in developing countries. He goes on to say that unless mankind acts immediately, there will be a worldwide famine in 15 years and the extinction of man within 75 years. He says mankind may be facing its final crisis. No action we can take at this late date can prevent a great deal of future misery from starvation and environmental disaster. Aren't you glad you came? So here, the thing, the author I'm quoting here is a guy named Hal Lindsey, who wrote a best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and in case you're wondering, it was published in 1970. So some of you have been around a while, you, you know of Mr. Lindsay and his work. And his assessment of where our planet was headed was not wrong. In his way, he was a prophetic voice. In fact, the whole premise of his book was that we were living in 1970 in the last days. And that how Lindsay had figured out exactly how the Antichrist would come to power and what the return of Jesus would look like. And I'm not saying that Hal got it all wrong. But we can admit that some of his ideas don't age well, looking back on them 50 years later. He was spot on about how bad things could get, though. How much longer can this world go on at the rate of decline we're seeing? Well, you knew we weren't going to get through a message on the Antichrist without getting into the book of Revelation, right? And here we go. Chapter 13, the dragon. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and it had ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on the horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have been, had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given the power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, it's with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. 
it seems like it would call for something else. Counterinsurgency, rebellion, resistance. Let me just read that last line again. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. John sees in this vision, because John is the author of the book of Revelation, the same John that wrote those letters we read from earlier. He sees a vision, a a character similar to what Daniel was shown in his vision. Same kind of character that Paul described to the Thessalonians. In this passage, he's referred to as a beast. So now, what do we know about this beast, or this man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist? We know that he exalts himself over every government or religious system. We know that people worship this character, forsaking true faith in God. We know that his power comes from deception with the aid of Satan and supernatural evil forces. We know this character can perform miracles and gain the control of people through deception. We know that the appearance of this character on the world scene is the beginning of a really bad time for all of humankind, especially those who resist his overlordship. Yep. It all seems pretty bad. A true Bible villain, if ever there was one. He lives up to, as advertised, the arch-villain, the gold standard, the villain against which all other biblical villains will be measured. You can roll up all your garden-variety Bible villains into one, and this beast will still beat them all. But hold on a second. If you read these passages carefully, they also reveal some pretty telling things about this villain. For instance, he doesn't control the timing of his own appearance. According to Paul, as he writes to the Thessalonians, he's able to be held back by some restraining force. Now, theologians and scholars have debated for centuries what that force is or who that force is. But we know his time of, and power and influence is limited and finite. 42 months, we read in one place. And it appears to usher in every time a judgment where God ultimately dispenses justice and sets things right. I've just kicked open a door that I'm going to quickly shut because we could spend a lot of time this morning talking about different approaches to understanding the end times or the return of Christ or the uh, end days. The fancy Bible scholar term is eschatology. We could talk about praetorists and historicists and futurists and dispensationalists and millennialists and trust me, we don't have that much time. In fact, we, Jesus would probably come back before we were done <laughs> And it would probably only create more confusion. It's worthy pursuit. I'd encourage you to chase it. We've taught classes on it here at Discovery in the past. But what we can safely say this morning for the benefit of all is that apocalyptic revelation can only be fully understood in hindsight or for the extra perceptive in the moment. It's always intended to be clouded and confusing as it relates to future events. The pictures are never clear. These writings are not intended to be interpreted as a riddle to be solved in order to understand future events, to predict the 
return of Christ or the appearance of the Antichrist. They're intended to provide guidance and hope for followers who are experiencing trouble and tribulation. And I think we fit into that category this morning. Hope. Yeah. Because what is always clear is that God wins. The outcome is never in doubt in spite of the worst villain's worst efforts. Or maybe that would be the worst villain's best efforts. Or the best villain's, never mind. It's never a contest. One more passage from Revelation to seal this up. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him. The beast or the antichrist, it's a figure to be feared for sure. There's no point in downplaying the role this character plays throughout biblical history in causing trouble for God's people, supernatural trouble. And I think herein lies our problem with this villain. The, why, the reason it terrifies us more than the others is that how can mere mortals compete with and defeat a supernaturally equipped beast? The simple answer is we can't. If you think we can, you've watched too many Marvel Avenger movies. We need a supernatural savior. And now we're back full circle to the writings of a frustrated apostle. The original Antichrist passages now make more sense. John knew from his experience that this is what we need to be constantly reminded that in spite of our advancements in art, science, medicine, civilization, we cannot escape the reality of our need for a Savior that is God incarnate, both God and human. You see, without divinity, there is no help for a world in trouble. Without humanity... We simply exchange our enslavement to one supernatural, supernatural tyrant for enslavement to another. Anyone who denies both Jesus' humanity and divinity is distorting the message, creating false hope or false despair, and this is precisely the work of antichrists. I'm going to invite the band up now as we wrap up couple of challenges the challenge for those of us who don't want to be an antichrist is to be exactly human find our hope and trust in the divine the saving grace of Jesus Christ that's all Jesus expected from his listeners when he wanted when he was warning them of terrible times on the slopes of the Mount of Olives that's all Paul wanted for his friends in Thessalonica it's all John wanted for his readers trust God Follow Jesus, the rest will become clear. If you're a skeptic listening to this message this morning, um, if you're questioning the claims of Christ or the influence and impact of organized religion on the world that we live in, I hear you. I also challenge you to assess your options in the face of true evil. Do you really believe the power exists within humanity? to resist 
evil altogether? Do you have a solution for the destructive power of evil or even an explanation for its origin? If not, maybe John's words about the Antichrist are something for you to consider. For those who consider themselves already following, your challenge, maybe this is the hardest one of all this morning, is to wait patiently. Resist the urge to believe in a dualistic system where the fate of the universe hangs in the balance. Trust in the reality of a supernatural, omnipotent God who is completely capable, completely capable of delivering us from the evil one. If you're struggling with the weight of evil in the world and maybe anxiety you feel in your life right now, there are people hosting our online service. There are people here in this room who will meet with you listen to you, pray with you this morning. Reach out to that chat online or make your way to the front of the stage after the service if you're here in person. We would love to help you process this this morning. Fully human, fully divine, fully capable of being everything every one of us needs for the dark days ahead. Let's worship that Christ together right now. If you'd stand.